Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Amen. That's God's word for us this morning, church. Let's be in an attitude of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. God, we don't have to go around looking for any other source of authority, source of truth, for God, you have given us this beautiful gift, your word, for your people. God, that we may know you intimately. God, that we may receive from you, our God, your commands, your statutes, how you want your people to live. So God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this gift of salvation that we could not earn. We did not deserve, but God, while we were in sin, Christ died for your people. We thank you for that. We thank you that we don't have to, to, to work for our salvation. Lord, we don't have to turn to your word to see how incapable we are. We know it. We know how we fall short of your glory. Creation groans of the pains of our sins. We thank you for your grace. God, I thank you that it is by faith we are justified. God, we thank you for your word and its sufficiency, your grace and your mercy, the faith that you've gifted to us. Thank you for Christ our Savior who died in our place. God, as we are reminded of this, this truth, we are reminded through the Reformation, our brothers and sisters who've gone before us standing on the truth of your word, we understand that all of this is your doing. And to you, O oh God, be the glory and you alone. Father, I pray that you would be with us in this time and remind us the importance that the Reformation still matters today. Father God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all that you have done and continue to do for your people and through your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. I know I'll forget our main point this morning. I've even got it pulled up on my phone just so I don't forget. Is The main point is Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. That was the first part that we were talking about this morning, Pastor Gary. A lot of people know the Reformation from its um, motto, which would have been Semper Reformanda, which means always reforming. But the the real motto fully understood is Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda, which means the church reformed, always reforming. So that means that, that we are in a place of we are reformed. We talked about that a, a couple weeks ago with you, church, that um, even though we, we may not have denominational ties uh, these days, you can say non-denominational all you want. That has its own baggage. Everything has baggage. But really, Reformed Baptist Church speaks to who we are because of what we believe. Now, we could say, like, we're not Baptist. People are going to come in and be like, oh, you're a Baptist church. You just don't say it. You're Reformed, but you just don't say it. The Reformation is, is that important church that, that we tie ourselves to, to that Reformed church because of the things that we came out of that our sisters who've gone before us, they fought for these things so that we would have a greater understanding and also be free from this worldly understanding, this, this tradition of man. So we are a reformed church, as should all Protestants be, 
but always reforming. Now, what does that mean? It means that we are constantly seeking the truth from God and His Word. That we don't want to follow man's tradition. It means that we are constantly, continually evaluating not just how we're living, but church, how we collectively, corporately are worshiping. Everything that we do needs to glorify God and be associated with His Word. If we do something and we can't somehow tie it into God's Word, then at, at the very best, it just begs the question, why are we doing it, even if it's not simple? At least let's, let's give a, a proper response. But specifically, what was the Protestant Reformation? Why are we celebrating it today, October 31st, 2021? What is the Protestant Reformation? Does it still matter, and why? The Protestant Reformation was the break from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, if you listen to the Apostles' Creed, it says that we believe in the Catholic Church. Now, that means the capital C Universal Church, okay? Believers across all times and all periods, right? We believe in that. We even believe, right, when, when we say across all periods, all times, we mean we also believe in the churches here in our town that are faithfully preaching the gospel, we believe in that. We believe in the importance of that. But this was the split from the Roman Catholic Church and its tradition. Now let me preface you before we get into the history, before we get into to the slides and everything. This is not a knock at your upbringing if you were raised Catholic. This is not a knock at your family that's still in the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. But this is to show you the line of divide that stands between those who believe in God's word and those who believe in man's tradition. Because what had happened in the Roman Catholic Church is man's tradition had, had heavily saturated and influenced their culture and their practices, their worship, to the point they were no longer speaking the gospel. So something had to happen. In church today, something still needs to happen when things come before the gospel, when things distort the gospel, when things take Jesus out of perspective. So yes, the Reformation still matters today. Why? So on this day in 1517, Martin Luther did something amazing, but let's back up a little bit. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther... He was not the sole piece of the Reformation. A lot of times he, he gets the, 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 um, the credit, right? He wasn't the sole piece, the only piece. He wasn't the first piece of the Reformation, but church, he was the big piece of the Reformation. But before Luther, there were many. I want to talk about one man just real quick. John Huss um, was before Luther, and he challenged the Catholic Church and would later be martyred because of his challenging of the Catholic Church. But before he died, he said this, and this is, this is his big quote that he's known for, but you can look and you can see how he challenged and what he challenged from the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. But before he died, he said, they will roast a goose now, but after a hundred years, they will hear a swan sing, and him they will have to endure. Now, John Huss, his name was actually tied to a goose, so they were roasting him, like burning him to death, right? This is what they were doing. But he said, a hundred years from now, they will hear a swan sing, which is tied to Luther. Luther even believed that this quote from John Huss was prophesying the work that Luther was doing in his day. 
And a lot of people have uh, directly associated it. But one thing that we know for sure is that, that God was stirring something up in his people to reform his church. To redeem his bride from what seemed to be unredeemable. This was a big deal. Now, what sparked Luther? So there were men before him. So, so what, what made Luther, who was, who was known, if you look at Luther's history, uh, he was kind of like a psycho, right? You like look at him, and he did a lot of crazy things. Uh, this thing, he, he did well, and he did right. But what sparked him? Did he just wake up one morning like, I, I don't like it anymore. Like, I'm just, I'm going to leave. No. Paul's words sparked him. That says, the just shall live by faith. Now, this was in big opposition to the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, which taught a heavily works-based faith, dealing with indulgences, your baptism being part of your salvation, communion, everything that you do, all your works and your good deeds, it plays into your salvation. Now, we don't believe that. We believe that your works are a result of your salvation, but your justification hinges on the grace of God and the faith that he's gifted you. So Paul's words sparked him that the just shall live by faith. He's thinking, man, this is, this is not what's being taught here. Now what set Luther off? Now this sparked him, right? There's things that spark us and it's like, mm, red flag, I'm going to keep an eye on that. But what set him off was indulgences. There was a guy named John Tetzel that came to uh, what we'd call Wittenberg, but it's Wittenberg. I had to practice that up because if Jared Holmes comes here, this is in Germany, if Jared Holmes comes here, he's going to chew me out after service because he's big into German history. It's Wettenberg, and he came to Wettenberg in Germany to sell indulgences. Now, what is an indulgence? An indulgence is, is um, a payment you pay to um, a priest or, or this man, uh, Tetzel, and it would get you less time in purgatory which is also a made-up thing, right? We don't read about that in the Bible. We read about that in the extra books that shouldn't have been added. But anyways, it's, it's not true. But this indulgence was to get you less time in purgatory, basically paying your way to heaven, paying your way for God's grace, which is a gift, the Scriptures say, and we'll get into it in a little bit. But this is a big deal. This sets him off. He's like, if, if it is God's grace that saves his people why are we taking people's money, money that a lot of people don't have, so that they can get to heaven and experience the grace and goodness of God? This doesn't make sense. And let me put this in, in more perspective. Maybe you all are like, I mean, I could throw a dollar in an indulgence jar, and you know, it is what it is. An indulgence was known as three marks, right? That's what the charge was, which is roughly a half year's wage. Like, we're not talking like, hey, you have some change in your pocket, I'll throw up a prayer to God and get you some less time in Purgatory. We're talking a half year's wage for many of these people. This was, this was serious, right? This is big money. Now, this led Martin Luther to write the 95 Theses, which you can read and find online or come borrow it from my house, and pound it to the door of the Roman Catholic Church on October 31st in 1517. He had such an issue that he was going to make it known and not just go to a priest he nailed it to the outside of the door so that anybody walking by could read it. It, was no longer, it wasn't in Latin, how they had the Bible translated at that time. He put it in German, and anybody walking by could hear him pounding it to the door and be like, what is this crazy man doing? Start reading it, and you're like, huh, some issues here. Now, this led to much debate. 
1521, Martin Luther was called to defend his position before Charles V at the Imperial Diet of Worms. I'm assuming it's probably Worms um, would be how to say that. I didn't look that one up, but this was a, a big uh, council that they had to debate these things, and this is where Martin Luther had to defend his position. He made it public, and now four years after he did that, he's going to have to defend it, right? And that's good. Anything your pastors say, we should be able to defend. We should be ready to defend. Anything, church, you go out and say, the gospel, anything, be ready to give a defense. Peter talks about this. Now this, however, is where Martin Luther really reamed into them for systemically abusing the scriptures and leading people to a false and hopeless gospel. It started with indulgences, but at the Diet of Worms, Martin Luther begins to lay into them where he, this, at this point, calls the Pope the Antichrist. He starts to tell them that they are preaching a gospel contrary to the one of the scriptures. He begins calling them out about a lot more of the deeper roots that got to indulgences, but didn't start at indulgences. And this is where we get the Reformation. The church reformed and being reformed. Our five points this morning are on the solas, which are known from the Reformation. Scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, glory to God alone. Now church, this is, this is important. Because when we look at other churches, we can have differences but these things hinge not on our secondary or tertiary issues that we talked about last week, but two weeks ago to where it's now distorting the gospel when we do not have these five things right. These are foundational to the Christian faith. Church, these are reasons to split and to leave and to stand up and to be firm and to be stern. And sometimes they get loud. Sometimes to nail things to the church doors in public to let it be known. But I want to break these down and go through each of the solas, which is the Latin word for alone. First is Scripture alone. The premise here of Scripture alone is that we believe that the Scriptures are sufficient for God's people. That we need no other source outside of God's Word to tell us how we are to live and to act and to breathe and to worship. Now the difference is, is they heavily relied on the priest and a little bit. They had to go through people to, to receive new revelation that the Pope, even today, church, can still add to Scripture. If he says something, it goes. We don't believe that. We know that the canon has been closed. John talks about it in Revelation that, that there's no more revelation. It wasn't that John wanted to have the last word like in a fight with my wife. Like, no, I get the last word. There's, there's no more argument. By the way, you're wrong, and I walk away. That's not what John was doing. The importance of that was to say that it, it's done, the canon's closed, you have everything you need. And John wasn't saying that on his own accord. This was inspired scripture, amen church? John was inspired to say and to write these things. So this is taking away the authority that the Roman Catholic Church said that they had to go even against the very holy word of God. And there's no better place to start in the solas than with Scripture alone. There's no better place to start here because what or who holds authority to say what we should be doing? 
No one and nothing other than the Scriptures. Now, you may find a book, and it may, it may uh, be good, and it may be beneficial to you, but church, I would tell you to carefully examine to make sure that it's pointing you to the Scriptures and pointing you to a godly understanding, even if it's a secular thing, that it's not drawing you away from this, because anything drawing you away from this is only useful for the fire that have on Friday. And I mean that with respect. I know the authors put lots of time into this, these books, but church, we need this. So anything that's contrary to it is good for nothing other than maybe understanding the other side, because this is sufficient. This is authoritative. When your pastors get up here to speak on Sunday mornings to preach, we are preaching, proclaiming God's word. And each and every one of us should be examining to make sure that our pastors are indeed doing that. We are not above God's word. Amen? Amen. So the canon is closed and we do not add to God's word. Mark 7, verses 5 through 9 are very important. Jesus spoke on this idea of human tradition and adding to or ignoring the commands from God. That it's not something that we should do. Jesus knew this. Jesus called this out from the Judaizers, right? The legalists of the Old Testament, where he says this. And think about how prevalent this is today, of us adding to God's word and ignoring other parts. It says, and he said to them, what did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Man, like, you, you think about those words and how real and prevalent. Like, we, we think about, this is why Scripture is important, it's authoritative, and it shows us continually how sufficient it is. Like, we, we think of all these verses, by grace you've been saved, not of works, so that no one can boast. John 3.16, we even know some of the Psalms, right? Psalm 19.11, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We think of all these little catchy verses, but church, how good is this one to keep in your back pocket to remind ourselves not to fall into human cunning and tradition and craftiness and deceitful schemes? And to also share to those who have or maybe are teaching others to follow human tradition instead of the word. Jesus himself says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That'd be like us getting up here. You now have to tithe 20% because your pastors feel like we need to, right? And we're just, we're adding to Scripture. You can give 20%. But we're not going to tell you that that's a command. That'd be a great place to be. We could put the heat at 72 instead of 68, right? Like those are things that, that could happen. I'm joking, by the way. Making sure you all are awake. <laughs> it's only 66. Someone turned it down. But he says this also. He, had, he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Jesus made himself very clear. He made it very clear for us, even today, that God's word is always more important than man's tradition. Now, there are traditions that we can have, like think, think back to like suit and ties. And maybe some of you all were like the first rebels, maybe back in the 90s, to start wearing some jeans back in church. And like it was like, 
Woo! Right? Like, can't believe you did that. There's nothing wrong with wearing the suit and tie. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, if some of you all come in here and you're like, I don't want to wear a suit and tie because no one wears a suit and tie. If you feel like that's what you want to do, do it. If that's your best and that's, that's an act of worship to you, cool. But there's a difference in, in, in the way that you want to do something compared to how God commands we do something. You see, what the world has done is determined for the church what is man's tradition and what is truly God's command. We've let the world do that. We've let men get up behind the pulpit and people have gotten behind the pulpit and not been challenged and not been examined. And church, that's me opening the door for examination on myself. But guess what? I'm not sweating. Because I know in my ability that God's displaying and my inability that God's displaying His power because it's His Word. Church, that's all I can get up here and do is preach that. But we've let men and women get here in the pulpit and preach human tradition as though it is God's command. Distorting the gospel. Paul, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. In Galatians, he says, let them be accursed, the person who would distort the gospel. But we've let the world tell us how we are to do and to live. And they're wolves. We were warned of them, that they will be dressed in sheep's clothing. They look like us. They act like us. They talk like this, but they deceive. So how did this scripture alone affect the Roman Catholic Church? How did this part of the, the Protestant Reformation affect the Roman Catholic Church? This understanding church took away the dependence on the priest and the pope to speak on God's behalf. The people could turn to this and understand it as authoritative and supreme, sufficient for all things. Remember, church, this was always difficult to challenge because there was no German translation. A lot of us can think like, all right, like I get it. Like maybe I've had a conversation with you before. I didn't understand what you were teaching that morning, but we turned to God's word. It was plain as day. They in Germany had a Latin Bible. They didn't know Latin. And guess what? They didn't have Rosetta Stone. They weren't learning it in like a couple days or a few weeks. So they kept it in Latin so the people couldn't read it. There was no effort to make this into German. And the, the printing press would later help Luther in actually establishing ground and, and gaining traction here in this area. But it was difficult, right? So some of us can look and be like, why did they never challenge? They couldn't read. Pretty simple. And so it would be like, for instance, like never teaching your children to become independent. Now, there's like a sense of, as a parent, you don't want them to like leave you, right? But you also don't want them to like not go to school and know what the other kids know, right? Like, mainly I want you like to learn to read. I don't want the teacher to call me and be like, hey, she says you just read for her. She says that you just help her understand all the things. That teacher's not going to tell me to come in and do those things for her. That teacher's going to say, we need to work to get your kid to this level. Church, we need to work on biblical literacy to make sure that we are gaining traction and understanding. The, whether you read the these or thous, start gaining traction. Find a translation that helps you. But there are plenty of translations that we should not just depend on other people to always read the word for us. Take heart and read the beautiful word of God. And then we know from 1 Timothy, Timothy 3, 16 and 17, how good and useful the word of God is for us. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, sorry. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Like, why would we not want to get that into every believer's hands? Why would we not want believers to be holding this and, and delighting in it? For it is God's word. It's authoritative, supreme, and sufficient for us. It says it's profitable, right? For teaching correction, that the man of God may be complete. So think about the incompleteness of the church before this time, depending on men to tell them what God says. Church, open our scriptures and read. The holy word of God is a gift to you from God. Christ alone, point number two. So you've got scripture alone, that, that, that we do not need any other source other than the Holy Word of God. Not only do we need no other source, we need no other person. We need no other Savior. No other source, no other Savior. It is Christ alone. This, this uh, specific sola, this part of the Reformation, explained Jesus' role in salvation. That Jesus paid the price that Jesus is the mediator, that Jesus is the one who is your representative at the right hand of God saying, this person is mine. We don't need to go through anyone else, not just to receive a source, but not to receive forgiveness. Jesus is our Savior. See, the Roman Catholic Church had and still has a high emphasis that the believer has to go through the priest. Right? Now, we believe in confessing our sins to one another. The scriptures say that. Confess your sins one to another. It, it's good that we do that. It doesn't mean, like we've talked about this before, it doesn't mean like we have like a confession time where everybody gets up and like, hey, I hit somebody in the face this week. Hey, I flipped somebody off on the way to church this week. Like, right this morning. Like, we don't have that time, but we do know in our more intimate settings, the one-on-one, -on -one, the day-to-day -day life with one another, our church family, that we do confess sins. But we don't have to go through anybody. Jesus is our Savior. Christ and Christ alone. First off, church, Christ is the one interceding on our behalf. Hebrews 7, verses 23 through 25. So, from the Scriptures, which reigns supreme which is sufficient and is authoritative, says this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It says that he is able to save the, those who draw near to him. He can save the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him. Jesus says, no one can come to me except, or no one can come to the Father except through me. Right? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Jesus continually pointed to this is a one-way street, and that street's name is Jesus Christ. Not Pope this, not Pastor this, not Priest this, not Saint this, Jesus. And this was a huge missing piece at that time and even still today in some places. That you cannot draw near church with man in the way. I mean, look, look at what Jesus says, that 
that he can save, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. But we've put up these walls blocking the, the beautiful doctrines of God with tradition of man that hinders your view of what's on the other side. And that's Christ setting you free from his finished work, by his finished work. He's setting you free from the bondage of sin by his finished work on the cross. Like, where else would we want to be? There's nowhere else we need to be. Romans 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Church, it's beautiful when we pray together. It's a command that we pray together. There is no command that we need to go to one another for forgiveness from God. Yeah, we should seek forgiveness and reconciliation when we've done wrong to one another. But no one's blood except the blood of Jesus has paid the price for your soul. No one. Christ and Christ alone. And this also sparked, secondly, this idea that Luther really started to expound on was the priesthood of all believers. That, so not only do you not have to go through somebody, you get to talk to God and commune with God wherever you are, whenever you want. That the Holy God now lives inside of you by the Holy Spirit. Amen, church? We believe that. That is, that is crucial. Our understanding of the triune God, that the Holy Spirit now lives inside of his people, those who have repented and believed in the gospel. And because of that, yes, we need the church, but it means that you don't need to come to 580 North State Road on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday to talk and to commune and fellowship with God. It does mean that you need to go to whatever places your uh, groups meet at so that you can fellowship with other believers, but it does not mean that you need to go to those places in order to fellowship and commune with God. It does not mean that you have to go to anybody else to seek forgiveness. We do pray to God for forgiveness. Having already been forgiven, we pray with full assurance knowing that we've been forgiven, but seeking to be sanctified into the likeness of our Savior, turning, actively turning away from our sin and seeking our Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Again, just like sola scriptura, which is scripture alone, this takes our eyes off of man and puts Jesus in the perspective, which is why we exist. And it keeps our eyes on Christ alone. Keeps our eyes on the finished work of Christ on the cross. Thirdly, faith alone. So we understand that Jesus paid the price. We believe in Christ alone, that we go through no one else. There's no other Savior other than Jesus Christ our Lord. And what we are justified by, at church, is faith alone. Now this begins to get at the act of works-based faith. Not just going to and through some humanly fallen, sinful man, but it looks to the finished work of Jesus and our faith resting in that and that alone, that we are justified by faith. We've talked about this for really a, a couple weeks because of, of Acts chapter 15 dealing with uh, primary issues with the gospel, and then it gets into tertiary, but there is a primary issue that when we begin to distort that we are justified by faith alone, we are now preaching a gospel contrary to the holy word of God. And church, we do not believe in a works-based faith. Google Church, let me 
State that again. We do not believe in a works-based faith. Do not think that on judgment day you'll stand before God and say, I did this, this, and this. On judgment day, our response should be, Christ died while I was a sinner, paid the price, and he granted me faith, and I believe. You be the glory, God. We'll get there. But faith alone. We don't believe in a works-based faith. The Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, did and still does. Now, this is an issue. It's this idea by practice that you have to believe and. It's Jesus plus, right? It's Jesus plus tithing. It's Jesus plus attendance. It's Jesus plus giving. It's Jesus plus groups. It's Jesus plus service. It's Jesus plus this and that. Whatever you do, we start to add to the finished work of the cross. Now, some people begin to think like, well, you know, like we've, we've had these conversations with baptism. Like, well, like, yeah, some churches teach that baptism saves you, but like, if a person doesn't have that understanding, what would be the difference, right? Like, I feel like we're just splitting. Oh, we begin to add to the work of Christ that shows that we don't think the work of Christ was enough. And when you're not adding to the finished work of Christ and Christ alone, you're living by faith alone. Understanding that you were justified by faith alone, which is what we should do, because according to the sufficient, supreme, and authoritative word of God from Romans 5.1, it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what, church? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul not only speaks to our justification being by our faith, he says that since then, since you have been justified by faith, you have peace. It's no wonder, church, that we have believers at other churches, so-called believers, depressed and anxious because they see that it's Jesus plus this. But Paul tells us that our peace comes from the understanding that we are justified by faith. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, when people begin to teach a works-based faith, what it does is leaves unrest within the people of God who were called to rest in Christ daily. Church, Jesus is our Sabbath. If you want to know here, let me give you a short answer outside of the Reformation. The reason we don't believe in the Sabbath day of worship anymore is because Jesus is our Sabbath. He said that. So that means you, because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you can rest and should rest every day. You can have peace because of the finished work of Jesus. It's when we begin to add to, when it's a Jesus plus this and Jesus plus that, that you will not find peace. Because church, we know that we're all broken. Church, if it was up to, to us to save ourselves, it would be up to us to sustain ourselves. So maybe we, we, we hit the nail on the head one time, somehow reach salvation. But now you've got to carry that on through to the day of completion. But what Paul writes to the church in Philippi, he says that he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion. That your salvation and your redemption, everything from that day on, rests on the finished work of Jesus. And it's when you find peace with that, with your justification being by faith alone and Christ alone, that you'll be able to live for God. That you'll be able to, to, to wholly worship Him. To fully see the goodness of God before you that saved you and will lead you to a more whole place of worship. 
There's literally no peace, church, when there's no rest. And there's no rest where there's no perfect sacrifice. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Turn in faith to Christ. Like, it's like when you start golfing, right? I don't know. If, do we have any golfers in here? Raise your hand. Anybody golf? Uh, got a couple? No one else? You all are like me for a few years, right? Yeah. What, you, you like to drive the golf cart? That one? Yeah? Okay. Well, I like to drive the golf cart, too. That's about the only good thing I do um, on the golf course. But it's like when you get through, like halfway through, someone always makes that joke like, oh, highest score wins, right? And it's like, ha, like wouldn't that be great? What, wouldn't that be great if we could just change the rules, right? Wouldn't it be great if we could just change things, right? And, and the idea here is that, that for some reason this is like we're going to change this from faith alone to, to works also, and it's going to make it better. It's going to make our imperfections seem better, like we're, we're going to be able to work it out. No, it's actually doing the opposite. Faith alone and Christ alone leads you to a more whole place of worship. It gives you more peace. We're never going to be able to make it like the highest score wins or the lowest score wins. Jesus wins. And our faith in him is all that we can rest in. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Makes it clear. And in that, he also says, point number four, grace alone. So he says it's faith alone, right? By, by grace you have been saved through faith. So faith is our response that we've been gifted by God. And the reason we have faith is because of God's grace. That it is a gift from God. Not our own work, nor is it a priest's decision. So this grace alone spoke, the, the premise is this, that you did not have to receive some kind of um, gain or, or grace from a priest. So if you come to Pastor Gary and I and say, hey, you have better communication with the big man, could you ask him for some forgiveness? We can't be like, brother, yes, I spoke to him, he's forgiven you. We can say, no, you need to believe in the gospel, and the gospel says that he draws near to you and you draw near to him. If you believe you have the spirit inside of you, you can talk to him and tell him how you've been, which he already knows this week, and guess what? In Christ Jesus, you're forgiven. It is not of works. Church, don't, don't come to us and, and ask us to, to forgive you, like, forgive you on behalf of God. Like, I, I get the sentiment, like, right, like, we're pastors, and, and be, really because of this, the, the history here, we're elevated to a place that we shouldn't be. God is God, and God does what God does, and pastors do what pastors do because of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 speaks so clearly, clearly to this. For by grace you have been saved. What is grace? Grace is receiving something you did not deserve. Mercy is God withholding what you did deserve. So grace is God giving us the faith to believe in Jesus. It is a gift, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Church, we can't walk around puffing up our chest. I made a better decision. I did more than you. I tithed more than you. I served more than you. That just means that your worship is in vain if you believe that your worship is attributing to your salvation. It is grace and grace alone. Paul writes this to Titus. Titus 3, verse 5. I'm wrapping up here. But when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs to the hope of eternal life. Church, it is God working in and through his people, even to the point when you see someone doing something good, to God be the glory. Point number five, God alone, when when you begin to grasp all these points, it reminds us that because salvation is of God and to God, we are to praise God, that we are to, to praise him. And the glory was not being given to God because man was getting all the credit. Man was the one forgiving other man's sins. Man was the one who was, who was interceding, right? When, when you put Christ in his rightful place on the throne, it leads you to a place to glorify him. When you put God in the proper place as the author of salvation, the, the doer and the cause of your salvation, then it leads you to a place of glorification, that you are glorifying him. Our focus, church, is not to please man. It is to please who? God. Galatians 1.10, for, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, church, we all know that to be true. Jesus has told us to go out and to live not like the world, right? So that means you don't fit in. It means you stand out like a sore thumb. It means as much as we do to try and fit in, when, the, when it comes down and we've got to speak truth, it will divide. It means they may not hate you, like outwardly, they may not be like, I hate you, don't talk to me again. But it means a line is drawn in the sand. Because we're telling people that God deserves the glory. God paid the price. God commands as God wills. It is God we are seeking to please. It is God that will receive the glory, even from his worst enemies on the last day. Psalm 115.1, Ben, you can go ahead and come back up here. Psalm 115.1 says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Church, when you understand the steadfast love and the steadfast faithfulness of God, it leads you to a place to worship him. It leads you to a place where he receives the glory in your life, in all things, at all times just as he alone should. So the Reformation matters, church. Ecclesia Reformata, Semper Reformanda. That we are the church reformed, always reforming. And let me tell you something, if, if any of this has been uncomfortable within you this morning, maybe God is telling you to repent and believe in the gospel. Or maybe God is sanctifying your mind and giving you peace because you've not been seeking peace found in Jesus. It's been Jesus plus when it just needs to be Christ alone. Church, I want to stand up and sing that. I want to sing of of the work that Christ did on the cross on behalf of his people this morning. I want to sing. We're going to sing in Christ alone, right? This was planned, right? This wasn't like, whoa. Like, we know how important this song is. Church, as you sing it, think about the lyrics. And if you're not a believer, let me tell you that Jesus is the only way. You're not going to find any other way. You're not going to find, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, the cheat code. You're not going to find anything outside of Christ. 
His word speaks to it. Creation attests to it. And the church is going to sing of it this morning. So let's stand and sing of the finished work of Jesus and let's praise him. And if you do not know him as your savior, come see me after service or or one of the pastors or somebody. Just grab somebody and be like, hey, I, I need to know more. But church, these are solas that we need to stand on and we need to continue living by and teaching because it is from God's word and we need it and we need to be sanctified by it. Let's pray.